0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm John Campbell. I'm a philosophy professor here at Berkeley, and I'd like to welcome you to this Howison Lecture. George Holmes Howison was born in 1834. He began academic life as a mathematician, um, at the University of Washington at St. Louis. But while in St. Louis, he um, encountered a collection of rather robustious, larger-than-life academic characters who were reading Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit... The St. Louis Hegelians were a very vibrant force. They were very engaged with, opposed to the um, emerging naturalism in American philosophy, which ultimately swept them away. Um, Howison's legacy was perhaps the most enduring of any of the St. Louis Hegelians. Josiah Royce was in some ways his nemesis, and Howison wrote about Royce, The most depressing sign about Royce's thinking is that he seems perfectly aware how this makes no provision either for immortality or for real freedom. And yet he appears to have no uneasiness under it but to contemplate this ghastly destiny of ours with a complacency even savouring of self-satisfaction. In contrast, Howison wrote, The causality of self-consciousness, the causality that creates and incessantly recreates in the lights of its own idea, and by the attraction of it as an ideal originating in the self-consciousness purely, is the only complete causality, because it is the only form of being that is unqualifiedly free. There's a kind of gusto that comes over in these remarks, I think. Um, Howison became the holder of the first endowed chair in philosophy at Berkeley, and he built the philosophy department. He was clearly an influential and much-loved individual. And on his death, his friends and colleagues put together a fund, which is funding today's lecture, to continue his work by bringing the most influential and interesting thinkers of the day out to the rural wilderness of California. Um, And I think we couldn't have a better person to continue with that role today than Gisela Stryker. She was Walter C. Klein, Professor of Philosophy and of the Classics at Harvard. She specializes in ancient philosophy, teaching Plato and Aristotle, as well as later Greek and Roman authors. She's written mostly on topics in Hellenistic philosophy and Aristotelian logic. She's the author of essays on Hellenistic epistemology and ethics, and under Aris- translation and commentary on Aristotle's Prior Analytics Book One. Her current works are revision and translation of the text of the Loeb edition of Aristotle's Rhetoric. She was named a Professor of Classical Philosophy at Harvard in 1989 and the George Martin Lane Professor of Philosophy and of the Classics in 1990. She left Harvard in 1997 to become the Lawrence Professor of Ancient Philosophy at the University of Cambridge Three years later, she returned to Harvard to be greeted by the headline, A Peripatetic Returns, um, and she stayed there until her retirement in 2011. She said that working through a text slowly and talking about it as you go, um, without the pressure of providing a bibliography or a paper, is a way of generating new ideas. Our title today is Cicero's Deoficius Stoic ethics without metaphysics. Please join me in welcoming uh, Gisela Streicher.
1: I I like the story about Harrison, uh, but I'm not a Hegelian at all, so it won't be inspiring. Uh, Can't help that. Um, On the other hand, you know, uh, not everybody can be as inspiring as the Washington, he So uh, you'll have to put up with whatever. Uh, I hope everybody has a handout, and uh, we'll see whether you know you g- don't get too bored with good old Cicero, uh, you know, who, whose prestige has considerably lessened since the time that everybody had to read his book. So <clears throat> anyway, I'm uh, going. Uh, I. Let me say a few words about uh, the title of this talk and then also uh, about Cicero. I left the title in Latin, uh, which wasn't just pure arrogance. It was simply because that was the title during the time that this particular book by Cicero was the most influential, namely between the Renaissance and, well, the early 19th century. Uh, That was a time when everybody had to read Cicero. Cicero was at the time, for the people who were reading him, a philosopher rather than what we now tend to think of him as an orator or maybe a politician. He was, as it were, on the curricula of anybody who studied something like uh, philosophy in college, but his influence even went wider. It was such that I think every sort of educated gentleman in most European countries certainly in England was expected to have read that book and so Hume for example which I always you know, liked refers to it uh, comfortably as Tully's offices he doesn't have to explain you know, everybody knows what's meant so Tully's offices is, I mean it was Marcus Tullius Cicero so that was Cicero's family name Tully's offices was as it were a, a, a part of every Uh, aspiring young gentleman's education uh, up to the turn of the 18th century. So that's the book I wanted to talk about, but then there is also another thing. Cicero's prestige, of course, went down, that's why I said up to the beginning of the 19th century, when people became obsessed with the idea of originality and genius. And also, uh, when the history of philosophy became a little bit more as it were, historically informed, and people were not just treated as though they had sort of inscribed in tone their doctrines and you could treat them as though they were all from the same time. So that was actually Higgins' fault, uh, so he, he does come up. <laughs> so uh, then at that time, you know, people began to think, well, Cicero was not at all an original philosopher, nor, I have to say, would he ever have claimed to have been one. Uh, and also, I think, uh, at least some ancient historians decided that he, he was no good as a politician. So Cicero disappeared, <laughs> except for those people who took uh, the classical languages in high school. He disappeared from the philosophy curricula. And also, I think that has, that may have something to do with the politics of the time. But in any case, the book Teofikis, which is a kind of book of manners for Aspiring gentlemen, namely aristocrats, sort of also was perhaps less apt to be read by people living at that time. Be that as it may, since Cicero was not an original philosopher, and as I said, you know, the idea that you have to be an original philosopher is questionable. Mm, Yes, most of us aren't, uh, and you know, philosophy wouldn't exist if (laughs) we all had to be (laughs) original philosophers. Uh, 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 so uh, Cicero uh, uh, was actually uh, something very important in the development of European philosophy namely he was I think one can say without much exaggeration he was the person who actually made philosophy which was a Greek affair as the word still indicates uh, uh, familiar to the Romans by writing books in Latin about philosophy. He had studied philosophy, I think he had a very serious interest, he was well informed about the philosophies of his days, and he was a great admirer of Plato, no doubt because Plato was not only a philosophical but also a literary genius. Uh, And uh, Cicero himself was evidently a very talented writer, not just a speaker, Uh, and so he took it upon himself, I think, to uh, write things in Latin so that people, as he quite correctly says, can also discuss the subject in their own language. It is clear from some remarks in you know, some of the prefaces to his philosophical books that some people said, no, come on, you know, we're all bilingual, everybody knows Greek, why should you do this in Latin? But he insists, and I think he's quite right, that in order to appreciate philosophy, you have to be able to discuss it with your friends in your own language, Uh, And so I think uh, we owe a great debt to Cicero and then perhaps as a second uh, in a row, Seneca, who was an admirer about 100 years later than than Cicero, um, that philosophy became something you could easily do in Latin. This was not very easy because philosophy, by the time that Cicero was beginning that work, already had developed quite a bit of terminology that simply wasn't available. And we know from Cicero's correspondence with his friend Atticus that he often sort of struggled with finding the right word. Fortunately, he really knew Greek extremely well. He had a fine ear uh, for style and so on. But he had, for example, a dispute with Atticus about whether Ophiki uh, was the right word to translate the Greek, uh However that may be, he did that. So Cicero was, as it were, Uh, uh, someone who prepared the way for philosophy being done and also uh, in doing so he wanted to introduce some of his perhaps not quite so bilingual and educated uh, countrymen to philosophy itself. So towards the end of his life when he could no longer uh, act as a politician because Caesar had sort of won the day uh, um, he decided that he could serve his country best by writing a kind of Survey of the main topics of philosophy, a kind of philosophical encyclopedia, uh, which is what he did until uh, his death. Now, the Diophiches is actually his very last book it 's not part of that encyclopedia. Uh, it was dedicated to his son, who was spending time in Athens to get an education so Cicero hope, but perhaps you know, understandable with such an overbearing father it seems that young Marcus wasn't so interested in philosophy. Uh, uh, be that as it may, Cicero wanted to write this, and it's, I think it's important to know because that has sort of made it a book that sort of is um, uh, dedicated to and written for what Americans tend to call future leaders. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, young Marcus was not a future leader. Uh, he liked <laughs> horses and wine better, uh, but anyway, Cicero chose a topic that would be accessible to everyone, You know, not metaphysics or anything uh, as abstract as even epistemology, so he uh, chose a book uh, about well, how one should act and how one should deliberate about you know, what the right thing to do is and how one should behave and so on. Um, he wrote this in the last month, uh, month of his life in, in a great hurry, and so, in this particular case, unlike other cases, it is pretty clear that he was more or less following one particular author and one particular book. Uh, in the other cases, he usually has read several books and people you know, spend a lot of time trying to figure out which ones. Fortunately, in this case, I don't have to do this. He was reading Panaichi's book, the uh, "Peri Café Contas, on appropriate action, uh, <clears throat> and uh, Panaitius was actually a Stoic uh, uh, he was the, uh, the, uh, the leader of the, or the, yeah, of the Stoic school uh, in the second century so he didn't know him personally but he chose that book and that's of course important. He, at least one reason for choosing that particular book was that Panaitius unlike other Stoics who were notorious for their horrible style, like Chrysippus, he was always held up as an example of how one shouldn't write. Uh, Panaetius wrote in, in elegant literary Greek. And so Cicero, you know, in other places, praises him uh, for that. Uh, and that also means that Panaetius left out some of the hair splitting or not sometimes even barbaric, uh, terminology that the Stoics tended to indulge in. They liked to make very fine distinctions, not all of which they could find in the language. And so if they couldn't, they would form their own expressions. Uh, and that made someone like Galen a long time afterwards say that they probably didn't even know proper Greek. Uh, anyway, so they would distinguish between selecting and choosing... And you know, you select one kind of things. Or choosing is more important. And, but perhaps their their most famous and most awkward uh, uh, term was uh, preferred indifferent, or dispreferred indifferent. That's even nicer. And one can imagine that uh, the, the Romans, who I mean, to, for whom Cicero was writing, including but not only uh, his son, and who weren't specializing in philosophy would just have fallen asleep after about an hour of this kind of stuff. So Cicero was happy to find a book that they could read. And I believe, I mean, you know, from what we know about Panaetius, that it's quite likely that Panaetius himself was writing for educated upper class Romans. Because in the time in Panagio's time, uh, you know, he he was he was from the island of Rhodes, and that was already part of the Roman Empire. He he uh, came to Rome often. He was friends with very uh, prominent uh, Roman uh, politicians. So I think one can assume that he probably wrote for the kind of audience uh, that would have appreciated uh, something like that written in in elegant Greek, but would not have bothered to read books by the Stoics themselves. Uh, <clears throat> so this is, uh, this is one reason why I think Cicero chose this book. Uh, now, um, people have spent a lot of time trying to find out what is Cicero and what is Panaitius as it were. Cicero never just translated, nor did he just paraphrase. He says, you know, I always use my own judgment. I'm pretty convinced that he abbreviated <laughs> quite a lot. Uh, in this case, because he put Panagius's, you book know, in the shorter uh, version. Uh, <clears throat> uh, and so people have been thinking, is this Panagius or not? Um, that's not what I want to do here. That's why I started with you know, the book as it was read in the 18th century. I want to talk about this book. And I assume that, yes, I mean, uh, in a way, Cicero is the hero of this talk because of his influence, But Panaetius is presumably the philosopher that I'm going to talk about. But since Panaetius' own works are all lost, I thought that giving the title Panaetius to that talk would make it sort of, would guarantee that nobody would show up. (laughs) Uh, uh, So, (laughs) there we go. So, okay, uh, then one thing to keep in mind, and I think I myself, and uh, perhaps only I, I don't know, uh, forgotten it, uh, Panaitius is not writing a survey or a general exposition of Stoic ethics. His title indicates that it's only a part of Stoic ethics that he's dealing with the part that is most relevant for people like Cicero's son, namely how to behave correctly, what to do, how to make decisions, and so on. That is to say he was writing about appropriate action. He was not giving, as it were, a theoretical framework that the Stoics would have used to explain why acting in this way was the correct way of acting. Um, th- he could leave it out um, in, in, in a book like that, just indicate you know, something. Uh, uh, and uh, So one needs to keep in mind that this is not all there is to a Greek ethics, but as I will sort of be saying at the end, not if you're living in the 18th century. Uh, <clears throat> so this is about appropriate action, how we should act, and unfortunately, for us, I think Cicero has not preserved Parnitius' introduction preface. Uh, well, you know, prefaces tended to be including tended to include a dedication. So Cicero has a dedicatory epistle to his son, and then he explains to him how important it is that anyone should, you know, really have thought about uh, how to act uh, uh, and speak correctly, and so on. So it's a very important subject that anyone who is educated and not just philosophers need to know about, and so on and so forth. And then then he suddenly, suddenly falls into something like a rather pedantic criticisms of Panaitius without even mentioned, having mentioned his name uh, as the author. Uh, he's following. I'm following mainly Stoic ideas. The fact is, and I, don't know if I haven't found this mentioned in any commentary, which I think is, is really amusing. Panaitius doesn't get mentioned at the beginning. Uh, you know, uh, but he says, and this is what he does wrong. He doesn't really use the right... Okay, so it seems to me that this is one sign of Cicero not having had the time to revise this book. He didn't. I mean, he, when he came back from the trip on which he wrote it, he had a few... Political speeches, as famous philippics, to give in Rome, and then he was murdered shortly after. It was, after all, the time of the civil war. Uh, <clears throat> so I don't think that he would have left those rather ill tempered remarks in, and that if he had revised the book, he would at least have mentioned Parnitius and perhaps complimented him on his good style, as he does in, in some of his other works. Uh, So all we can learn from this introduction is that the book is intended as an aid to deliberation about decision-making and organized around three questions that will come up. There is first the question whether a proposed action is honorable or not. Uh, Honesto is the Latin word. Then whether it is useful or expedient. And sometimes one would... Uh, faced difficulties when those two criteria, the honorable and the useful, came into conflict with one another. Uh, uh, One footnote, I have kept honorable, which is closer to the Latin honestum. Uh, It could also be translated, but I'm not sure that that's the best way to proceed as morally good. So the question is, you know, first you consider whether this is honourable in the sense of morally acceptable or praiseworthy. Then you consider whether it's sort of good for you, useful in that particular sense. And then, you know, sometimes you, you find that those two things conflict and you have to figure out what to do in such a situation. Um, yeah, but you know that can't have been all that Panagius did. And so instead... Uh, of his, the missing introduction I have on the handout. I have quoted a line not from Cicero and from a Greek author who, who unfortunately just, you know, gives it in a list of people's definitions of the aim of life and that's Clemens Alexandius, mm-hmm. our <clears throat> church father. panagius declared that the aim of life is living according to the resources or starting points given to us by nature. I don't want to quibble about whether that was sort of the official definition. We cannot tell from Clemens' testimony. But it does tell us, and that's why I'm quoting it, it does tell us what actually uh, Cicero does at at the beginning when he evidently turns to Panagius' exposition. So what does it mean? to live according to the resources or starting points. Afomai is actually not the same as homai. Homai is impulsive, is stoic term. Afomai is Panaetius' term. Uh, <clears throat> uh, well, uh, that's what we get in, in uh, the first chapters of that book, and that's what I'm going to talk about uh, now. Um, it begins uh, deceptively, almost like general introductions to stoicism mentioning two natural tendency or impulses that, according to the Stoics, all animals, including humans, have in common. Namely, they all have an instinct for self-preservation, which, for example, you know, makes them find the right kind of nourishment and so on and so forth. And they also have an instinct uh, to care about people uh, of the same species. And the example tends to be parents caring for their children uh, and that's true, not just of humans. As I said, uh, this is the famous doctrine of Oikeus. This being a word that everybody says is untranslatable, uh, so it's sort of feel uh, concern for something as belonging to one. Uh, but then, uh, although he mentions those two things, uh, he turns to something that we do not find in other Stoic sources, namely, he, as it were, applies this to the case of humans. Each. Species follows its own nature, and that means he now develops the resources that humans have insofar as they are rational beings. So it's not really the old doctrine of eukaeosis, of concern, self-concern, and social concern, uh, which we find as the basis, basis of, of, uh, of Stoic uh, ethics in, in other authors. Panaitius does seem to have uh, added something to it, and he develops a description of four of these tendencies based on human rationality that together uh, will lead you, as it were, to virtue, i.e. he describes them in such a way that following these tendencies and reaching the aims that they have will make you a virtuous person. Um, This is now, uh, I'm coming to the next thing on the handout, but I'll just summarize because, I mean, it's going to get too long if I don't. Uh, so he starts out with, uh, with justice, and having read Aristotle, no doubt, he says, well, humans have language. And actually, the, what we now see as the old definition, rational animal, much, is much likely to have started as language-using animal. That's logicon. Cicero knows that. He translates it as ratio et oratio, ratio, reason and language. The word means uh, both in Greek. So humans are language users, and because they're language users, they are capable of talking, uh, making plans for the future uh, and making rules for themselves and so on. So they are, as Aristotle says, much more sociable than herd animals because they can discuss and set rules for themselves. They can introduce justice. So that's the basis of justice. The next item is knowledge. Humans are rational, so they are uh, by nature. So uh, um, inclined to try and learn as much as they can, uh, they want knowledge, and then come to other things that are slightly more problematic. The next is, um, one would expect in this case, uh, courage. I mean, if it's the four cardinal virtue, but Panaitios has magnanimity, magnitudo animi, uh, which he describes as a certain <laughs> desire for leadership. Uh, um, So, as, uh, as a result of which he says, a mind well equipped by nature is not willing to obey anyone except a person who offers advice or teaching or whose commands are given justly and legitimately for the sake of some benefit. In the later chapter, when he deals with that virtue in particular, he actually calls it a desire for freedom. So he seems to think that people have a natural desire for something like autonomy, and that's what he's describing here, and putting in the place of the usual case of courage, um, this is not really de- deviating much from the Stoics because they, they had you know, varying lists. They had lists of everything. They also had lists of virtues and sub-virtues, and usually it would be courage and then magnanimity, but you could also reverse it. And next comes what is the second point on the handout, namely what must have been, I think, Panagia's most important innovation. We are told that man alone, as a rational animal, has a sense of order and propriety and of the right measure in words and deeds, and no other animals then perceives the beauty, the loveliness and harmonious arrangements of parts in things perceived by sight. So man's rational nature leads him to transfer those qualities from the eyes to the mind, a transfer, I think, that would be much easier in Greek because the word for inner beauty or for moral virtue and for outer formal beauty is the same, namely kalon. Uh, so you transfer it from sight, from the eyes, to the mind, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, <clears throat> and thinks that beauty, constancy, and order should be preserved, and much more so in one's decisions and in one's deeds. So. First you say, as there is the beauty of the body, so there is the body of the mind, but then you also say At the, body, the, the beauty of the mind is the more important. Uh, <clears throat> so these people then, once they have made that uh, transition, are careful also to do nothing uh, in an unfitting or effeminate way, as all men, in all their opinions and actions, thinking and doing nothing licentious. Like now, this is a change, because the Greek uh, uh, f- uh, foursome of virtues usually has the virtue of temperance or moderation, Greek sophrosyne, in this place. And Cicero actually, when he sort of resumes um, in a, f- a few paragraphs further down, uh, what he has said here uh, includes moderation and temperance. So in place of that, we find uh, a tendency to recognize beauty, and then to wish to be beautiful yourself, not just in the outer sense on which one can't do much, uh, but at least in the inner sense. And, and that is described as a harmonious fitting together uh, of parts, and of course, that corresponds to the ancient idea of beauty, they weren't for the romantic sort of singularities. They were for symmetry and order and so on and so forth. So this is a description of beauty and you try to have a soul that is harmonious and uh, and orderly and, and so on and so forth. What that means, I'm not going to try to explain, but what's remarkable, uh, I mean, we get to that later, uh, what's remarkable, I think, about uh, this substitution for Sophrosyne is that it actually is a matter of recognizing virtue in general. Uh, that's, for example, how Seneca uses it. He uses the same comparison, no doubt he knew Parnitius and he certainly knew Cicero, um, uh, to explain how we arrive at our first notion of the good, where by the good he evidently means what the Stoics saw as highest good, namely virtue. So he has the same analogy. You, know, you transfer your idea of beauty from, uh, from the sight to the mind, and you then desire to become a person who is, has a beautiful mind, and that shows in a kind of uh, harmonious soul and corresponding harmonious behavior. Uh, but it's very odd to find, as a single virtue, something that seems to be a desire for virtue in general. Cicero doesn't comment on this. Uh, We cannot tell, of course, whether it was just like that uh, in Panaetius' book. Uh, But one thing that I think one should realize is that there is, as it were, uh, a a coupling of a cognitive faculty which is apparently uh, unique to humans. We might even agree with that, although, of course, who knows? Maybe, you know, uh, birds can... But they, they usually don't paint pictures and stuff. Uh, so, it's a unique human faculty of appreciating beauty, uh, um, and that's a cognitive faculty. You can recognize beauty, and you can apparently recognize inner beauty uh, from the way that people behave, if they behave in a way that corresponds to beauty on the outside, namely orderly, and and, and so on. Uh, perhaps one could call this something like integrity. This is a word that Seneca uses. Uh, but, you know, that's not the same as the somewhat limited virtue of temperance or moderation. Now, one trivial explanation of these two substitutions, which I just mentioned but don't think could have been decisive, is that both courage and uh, moderation are usually negatively defined. Courage, as they will say, is do the right thing without fear. So courage is mainly the absence of fear. Moderation, of course, is the avoidance of excess. Now, if you are panaceous and you want to sort of talk about tendencies to reach certain aims that are uh, proper to rational animals, then that's not a good idea. Whereas in the case of magnitudo animi, of you know, uh, 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 magnanimity, he can put leadership or freedom, autonomy as a goal. And in the case of so for Zuni, he can put blue, beauty as a goal. That is one uh, possibility. But I think you know, if it were just that, that would be boring. Uh, the fact is that Cicero, in this particular passage, does not explain. Uh, he doesn't even you know, tell us that this is. A, 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 he doesn't sort of notify us that there's two things. But if you, if we then turn, and that's the next thing on the handout. to the end of book one of the Deophikis, 93 to 95, we get an explanation and an uh, official recognition of this double role of the sense of beauty in Panaetius' theory. Uh, Cicero <clears throat> explains first, you know, we have to we, we get to the last of the virtues and uh, this is uh, uh, to be explained for as the fitting, I'm sorry that I couldn't find a better term. Again, this is sort of uh, one that has at least become useful. The translation that I've mostly used has seemly, and that seems to me to be unseemly. So I I prefer fitting. Uh, So anyway, Cicero sets out to explain what he means uh, by this virtue, uh, uh, saying next we must discuss the one remaining part of honorableness, of more virtue. Under this appear a sense of shame and what one might call the ordered beauty of life restraint and modesty. This sounds more like sophrosine than anything else. A calming of all the agitations of the mind and the due measure in all things. Under this heading is included what in Latin may be called decor. Uh, the beauty of this is that decorum is still a word, and I'm absolutely convinced that the English language got it from this book. Uh, so decorum, uh, the Greek word is prepper. Uh, the, yeah, the essence of this is that it cannot be separated from what is honorable or virtuous, for what is fitting is honorable, and what is honorable is fitting. It is easier to understand than to explain what the difference is between the honorable and the fitting. Um, So he goes on a little bit uh, and then says, just as the loveliness and beauty of the body cannot be separated from health, I think a comparison is really helpful here. So the fitting of which we are speaking here is entirely blended with virtue but can be distinguished by thought and reflection. So uh, the prepon, the uh, uh, fitting or whatever you want to call it, decorum, decorum is actually... uh, inseparable from virtue, it is, uh, as he makes clear, I think, the outer appearance of inner beauty. Uh, He says, you know, it doesn't take subtle reasoning to discern it, but it is in plain view. So uh, what he is saying is that by prepon, uh, the Greeks designate something like the outer visibility of inner beauty. Uh, Now, it's it's, uh, important to realize that the word prepon uh, had already, by the time of Panaetius and before Cicero, uh, become a very common term in Greek aesthetic theory, if you want to call it that, namely literary theory. Uh, But perhaps more important for this particular passage is that prepon shows up in Plato's dialogue, Hippias Major, as a term used to define beauty, uh, what fits well together to a prepon uh, Socrates suggests to his, uh, to, to uh, uh, Hippias. Uh, now Plato is not nice to Hippias so Hippias is described as being extremely obtuse uh, <clears throat> and so uh, it's no surprise that he is unable to defend the proposed definition uh, against the objections that Socrates immediately proceeds to raise. Uh <clears throat> Um, when Socrates asks whether toprepon, uh, as I said, the fitting or whatever you want to call it, or decorum, is what makes things appear beautiful or what makes them be so, Hippias opts for appearing, which I think is probably correct as far as Greek usage goes. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, But that leads to his defeat, as most interlocutors of Socrates, of course, lose the battle. Socrates proceeds to interpret appearance as more uh, and possibly deceptive appearance and argues that this cannot be what they're looking for under beauty, uh, uh, namely what accounts for things being beautiful. That's what beauty must be and not appearing to be beautiful. But Panaeus was not, Hippias. And he knew to avail himself of a distinction that seems to be missing in Plato, or, i.e., Hippias, you know, wasn't smart enough to come up with it. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the distinction between appearance as uh, outer manifestation of something, as beauty, uh, I mean, physical beauty, is supposed to be the manifestation of of uh, health. You know, I mean let's assume that's true, uh, and appearance as mere deceptive appearance, only apparently so, but not really so. To use the analogy uh, uh, cited by Cicero, if physical beauty is the outward appearance of health, the fact that it may be imitated by cosmetics uh, is not, doesn't show that it must always be a mere semblance. Um, and similarly, the constancy and order of conduct in the manifest is a manifestation of inner beauty, uh, <clears throat> uh, one cannot exclude the possibility that it is mere appearance. Of course, you can pretend to be an honorable person and you're not. but it will still be what makes lo- inner beauty or moral beauty recognizable by others. So I think what Parineius has in mind is the, uh, as it were, the outer appearance of inner beauty, and the appearance need not be uh, a misleading appearance, so this is, this is the point that Hippias didn't get. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, this then must be general decorum, and we are still sort of some steps away from finding a, sp- a special virtue. But at this point, Cicero actually comes to, uh, comes to uh, recognize or to admit that there are two ways of speaking of decorum. So now you turn to the next, to the second page of the handout. Uh, so um, having explained that the decorum is the outer appearance of inner beauty, uh, he, uh, Cicero admits that this has two senses or two descriptions, as he says in Latin. We understand the fittingness of a general kind involved with honorable behavior as a whole, Secondly, however, something subordinate to this which relates to particular parts of what is honorable. The first tends to be defined something like this. Fitting, prepon is what agrees with human excellence or human virtue in the respect in which human nature is different from that of other beings. So virtue is the perfection of a rational animal. Uh, That part, the part that is subordinate to the genus, they define so as to say that Fitting is what agrees with nature in such a way that it shows moderation and temperance, that's the usual virtue you expected in that place, with the kind of appearance that belongs to a, brave, to a free man. Actually, Atkins' translation had, has with the appearance of a gentleman, but it's not quite that, I mean. Uh, <clears throat> so, well, we're still not that much smarter. Why would you uh, be, make this awkward mood Move of using you know our fittingness or prepon or decorum in two different senses: one for virtue in general, and one for a special virtue. It seems to me that what comes out the motivation, which uh, must have been a motivation because Cicero wouldn't have come up with the story, uh, comes out in a later quotation, which I've also put on the handout. Uh, <clears throat> Namely, uh, this is Deo 98 to 99. Uh, For just as the eye is aroused by the beauty of a body and is delighted, just because all the parts are in graceful harmony, so this fittingness, shining out in one's life, arouses the approval of one's fellows. Because the the, uh, order and constancy of every word and action. Thus we must exercise a kind of reverence towards other people or men, both towards the best of them, that's the aristocrats, and also towards the rest. To neglect what others think of oneself is a mark not only of arrogance, but also of utter laxity. There is a difference, however, between justice with respect to others and respect in considering persons. The part of justice is not to harm a man. That's what justice prevents you from doing that of respect not to offend him. That's I think the motivation what Panaitius is including here and what is indeed an important step is uh, the desire to be liked by others, which can also be ascribed to the perception of beauty in a person because beauty is an attractive quality. So beauty is something that we appreciate you know, insofar as it's beautiful, but it also pleases us. And so the beautiful, as it were, behavior or the beautiful actions of a virtuous person will also, uh, if that person is polite and tactful uh, and moderate and so on and so forth, will also make her liked by other people. That's... Indeed, the virtue it is something that the Greeks would call eudoxia, and it's funny that in the, in his sort of general exposition of Stoic ethics in in the book on ends, Definibus, uh, Cicero actually mentions without naming Panaitius that the older older Stoics thought that you know a good reputation was something indifferent uh, you wouldn't have to care about, but some Stoics actually said that eudoxia was important too, and I bet you that that was. Panatius. so Phatiius thinks, and I think you know the argument is not a bad one uh, that people do want to be liked by others, and in order to be liked by others, they have to behave in certain kinds of way, which can also be described as moderation. Uh, and harmonious behavior and temperance because, you know, you shouldn't go to excess, you shouldn't be rude, and so on and so forth. So that's the second function of this word decorum, and that's the one, of course, in which it has landed in the uh, English language. Decorum is, of course, you know, sometimes etiquette. Decorum is the right way of behaving and so on. Uh, It is not used in English anyway, anywhere, uh, as as a synonym of virtue, uh, but it is, exactly what gets described here and again I think uh, I have every reason to suspect that it got into the language from Cicero everybody was reading Cicero so they learned that decorum is important from Cicero this of course also explains to a large extent why the book was used as a sort of manual for aspiring uh, gentlemen who wanted to go into politics future leaders Uh, they had to know how to behave themselves and actually this chapter is much longer, the chapter on this virtue is longer than the others in, in Cicero's uh, exposition. That is something which may or may not be Cicero himself because he actually does, uh, obviously b- b- describes how a young man in the position of his son, an aspiring Roman aristocrat or a, senator, a politician ought to behave. Uh, it is also, of course, to, from our point of view, in, in any case, an extension of the field of morality, I think, because those offenses, not to offend people, cannot always be seen as a moral, uh, as a moral defect uh, or error. Sometimes it is, I think. Uh, but those things like politeness and a, a good or bad taste and so on cannot, of course, be sort of legally because you can't prescribe and you can't uh, prohibit it. Uh, But they are, of course, a very important way of keeping society together. If we were all rude to one another and, you know, uh, unconcerned about them, if we didn't have the tendency to want to be liked, uh, it might be much more difficult to live with others. And so there is a point in including this including tactfulness and a sense of humor and politeness in the book about how to behave correctly, even though there is no moral penalty, as it were, attached to it. Uh, and historically speaking this is also a move that Panaitius made because the Stoics were at that time already sort of divided between cynicizing Stoics who said you know, who cares about reputation I'm Diogenes, I'm living in a barrel and I you know, won't say hello to the emperor when he comes by uh, and all kinds of other things um, and Panaitius was definitely against after all he was you know, an aristocrat from Rhodes um, so he's on the well mannered side of Stoicism uh, on the other hand, you know he has a point. Uh, he, he doesn't just say, you know, what we don't want to be, you know, uh, 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 running around with, with shoes and you know, uh, uh, and so on. Eating with our hands always uh, sh- uh, shouldn't be done. Um, but I don't think that that's really important. I think it is important that he does include uh, this kind of uh, uh, action in his account of virtue. Uh, and it is a sort of you know, uh, a limiting case. Uh, there are cases of bad taste which are really apprehensible, and there are cases of bad taste, such as you know wearing horrible dresses on the beach, which are not reprehensible and just sort of tasteless and you know, so what uh, so, But you know uh, uh, sort of singing at a funeral is perhaps not I mean singing uh, pop songs at a funeral might be something that would be reprehensible. Uh, Cicero's examples, of course, like most of these kinds of rules, etiquette and so on, they change a lot with the times. So Cicero's examples are hilarious. One of the obvious improprieties is singing in the forum. You don't do that if you were a senator. Hmm, Why? Uh, And then he also says you mustn't run. If you're a senator, you walk. You you go slowly. So I mean, the book is also amusing sometimes because it shows you something about how they thought one ought to behave. I guess that you know, in a hundred years, people will say similar things about us. So we shouldn't uh, take this as being a mistake. So well, but what I wanted to show was that this introduction of beauty, uh, both as a general quality that shows you know. I mean, as a sign of inner beauty, as a sign of virtue, and as the specific virtue of, as it were, good taste and good manners, uh, makes sense and is recognized as being a double function. Whether the one comes before the other, I can't tell. But the first seems to me to have mainly an epistemological function. How do we come to think that virtue is worth having? Why do we want virtue? Well, You know, we don't have to understand anything of the underlying Stoic theory, which is much too uh, hard, or uh, at least Panaitius may have thought for for, uh, newcomers to philosophy. Uh, But we can recognize virtue as something good when we admire other people because of their beautiful behavior. And this is exactly what Seneca puts forward when he talks about how we acquire. What he says is our first, it's important, I think, to emphasize the first here, our first notion of what is good. We we, uh, derive that notion from observing the behavior of people we admire, and then that behavior is, as it were, uh, characterized by the kind of integrity that makes the behavior harmonious because there are, as it were, no conflicts between words and actions and so on and so forth. Um, so that's, to some extent, an epistemological function, but then there's also the practical side, which is that in order to, uh, to have that virtue, you have to behave in a way that makes you liked by other people. And, and uh, you know, it seemed in both cases that it made sense to appeal to beauty because beauty is not only admirable, Calon, in that sense, but it's also pleasant. And so in order to be, as it were, a pleasant person to be with, then this is how uh, you should behave, Also, so Cicero says. <clears throat> I can be brief about the second book, which is about the expedient. So I should emphasize, of course, that this, namely caring for oneself, or what Cicero describes as the comforts of life, which includes things like health and wealth and good birth and so on, uh, <clears throat> Uh, is treated separately from the virtues. Uh, So in the second book, he talks about how, you know, uh, he he mentions these things, and then he says, well, but, you know, and this must be following Panaitios because he does refer to him. uh, I'm only going to talk about the thing that is most important if you want to uh, lead a good life. The most important thing uh, that's expedient to you is having friends and supporters. So what he talks about in that book is how to win the hearts and minds, as the Americans say, of your fellow citizens in order to get them to support you. Again, of course, this is a great chapter for a book that is given to future leaders as a manual of how to become a successful gentleman. Uh, But what is problematic from the point of view of Stoicism is indeed the fact that uh, Panaito treats morality, as it were, and uh, as, as it's now become a called prud- prudential behavior, self-serving, self-interest, you know, which, of course, is legitimate in many cases, uh, separately. Because the Stoics held, at least uh, the Orthodox Stoics, tended to hold the view that the good or uh, the useful cannot be separated from the virtuous. So whatever is honorable has to be uh, expedient, and whatever is expedient has to be uh, Uh, virtuous. Now, the problem with that, it seems to me, and here I am inclined to think that it wasn't just that Panaitos was using the language of the people, because as much as Socrates may have sort of railed against separating the useful from morality, uh, there's an underlying error, I think, if you uh, strengthen it to the extent that you say that every appropriate action which is as it were, not unjust, not immoral, but it's just useful and not, therefore, morally admirable, it has to be admirable as well. So uh, Plutarch, for example, tells us that people would make fun of the Stoics who pre- pre- uh, pretended that when the wise man, the Stoic sage, the ideal perfect person, you know, uh, blows his nose, you know, he is performing a virtuous act that is admirable because he's doing what's appropriate. Um, so uh, you know, uh, I think I can understand that Panaetius can get rid of this because he doesn't need a thesis that is so strong. It is perfectly sufficient to say that, as it were, morality always comes first. That is to say, it cannot be the case that an action that is immoral, the contrary of morally correct, cannot be useful. That you can maintain, and following Socrates, you would have maintained, but he doesn't have to maintain that any action that is permissible, as it were, so not immoral, but also not morally admirable, but useful. Also has to be morally admirable. So it seems to me that the Stoics were going too far, and I'm inclined to think that you know, Panatius was sort of silently stopping this without thereby, as it were, abandoning uh, his Stoic uh, uh, school, because the thesis actually was too strong, and it led to you know things like also oh, okay when. The, when they, uh, a wise man eats his breakfast, he's already engaging in virtuous activity. Well, you know, even Chrysippus is said to have admitted that, no, this isn't much to admire in a man who, as it were, temperately abstained from an old woman with one foot in the grave. This, of course, is plutarchs example. Uh, uh, so uh, one might say, you know, uh, that even though it is true that the separation, the separate treatment of uh, utility uh, and the four uh, virtues in two different books might occur and evidently did, because Cicero mentions it, uh, protests from, from uh, other Stoics, uh, Panitius probably had a point and didn't care. Uh, and so, you know, uh, the distinction has survived uh, because it is indeed quite helpful. And of course, there seem to be many things like, yes, indeed, eating a healthy diet and being cleanly and so on and other things that other Stoics who are not so much talking about future leaders will mention, you know, are quite useful, but there's nothing very admirable in brushing your teeth in the morning. Uh, so <laughs> one can see that it's a good idea, it's appropriate, uh, but one doesn't have to find it admirable in addition. Uh, so uh, to that extent, then, uh, it seems to me that uh, the separation of those two topics, uh, apart from being a popular move, is probably quite correct, even within the limits of Stoicism. And secondly, throughout the second book, after every recommendation about winning the hearts and minds and so on and so forth, and you know, don't be uh, oppressive and so on, uh, there's always, almost like a refrain, there is always the refrain of, do all this within the limits of justice. So in this particular book, Justice, and that is often a synonym of morality, becomes, as it were, a restraint on uh, one's self-interest. You can follow your self-interest, provided that it doesn't interfere with the rights of others, provided you keep yourself within the limits of justice. Uh, So that's quite clearly uh, uh, admitted, and so he would, therefore, one can assume that Panagius would say, no immoral action can be useful, because he has you know included and also when he, uh, when Cicero sort of t- uh, mentions the topics, first, you deliberate about whether something is morally good or morally bad or permissible, and then you deliberate about whether it's useful or not. so by the time you come as it were through the second consideration, things that might be useful but immoral have already as it were been eliminated uh, because they you know, they just can't be done when they're immoral. Uh, so far, then, it seems to me that we have reason to think that Panagius was not unorthodox as a Stoic, although he introduced some novelties. But, of course, we also have to remind ourselves that this isn't all there is to Stoic ethics. Um, Uh, On on the cognitive side, Seneca explicitly introduces his his letter about how we come by our first notion of the good by insisting that it's a first notion. So uh, outer beauty, as it were, serves to introduce people to beauty. What it doesn't is explain what inner beauty is. Uh, So in order to understand the historic doctrine, as it were, in depth, one would have to go beyond this. And I think this comes out, this is, I think, the intention of this book. It is not meant to be, and the title shows that it's not meant to be, a complete account of Stoic ethics. But I think it becomes clear in a a late passage, which is rarely quoted, and that's then at the end of uh, uh, page two on your handout. Um, Cicero has a passage which... I believe, must be taken from Panaitius. It is in the introduction to the third book, which Cicero wrote on his own, because Panaitius never did write it. Uh, uh, But no matter where it belongs, it would have, I think, it could very well have come from Panaitius' introduction. Uh, So what Cicero says is this, and I'm just reading it out now. The duties that I discuss in these books are then those that the Stoics call middle. And by middle, they mean that they are shared and widely accessible. Many achieve them by the goodness of their intellectual talent and by their progress in learning. The duty that the same men call right, or the appropriate action that they call right, the Greek is katosoma there, is complete and absolute, and as they say, uh, fulfills all the numbers. And it cannot belong to anyone except the wise man. Now the wise man suddenly shows up. He's the perfect person. And real virtue, it also turns out, uh, b- belongs only to the wise man. So we are looking at the usual, sl- slightly paradoxical and slightly provocative formulation of Stoic ethics. Um, however, then he goes on, when some action is performed where middle duties are in evidence, it is seen as being abundantly perfect. That is because ordinary people cannot really understand how it falls short of being perfect. Insofar as they do understand it, they think that nothing has been overlooked. The same thing tends to happen with poems, pictures, so we're back in aesthetics, and many other things, by which inexperienced people are delighted, praising them when they should not be praised. Uh, The reason, I believe, is that there is some worth in them that attracts the ignorant, but they're unable to judge what faults each may have. Therefore, and now I think that's an important point about what the book's trying to do, when they are taught by experienced people they readily abandon their view. So he compares his treatment of the Stoic Confettion-appropriate action as opposed to right and morally praiseworthy action uh, with uh, you know, uh, showing, uh, uh, introducing people to the study of art, uh, teaching them to appreciate pictures, But then, of course, when they are inexperienced, they will perhaps think that there's no difference between, say, a very good color print and the original of a painting. Or they will, you know, like pictures that uh, the sort of uh, supercilious art critics would say are not the best that this painter has produced or whatever, or they see, you know, oh, the color isn't quite right. So, uh, you know, uh, innocent and novices will go into the gallery and will, or in the museum and find everything equally beautiful and, and so on. And then, uh, you know, uh, if, however they then take a course in art history and aesthetics you know they may learn to see that actually you know some of these pictures are better than others and some of have absolute flaws that they didn't see in the first place seneca has a different way of explaining what happens he also realizes that you know beauty isn't all there is to it um, so then he says uh, and this is also in the handout uh, you know well by, by nature tend to exaggerate what we like Uh, So he first explains the analogy, uh, outer beauty and inner beauty, uh, and then underneath, however, there were many faults hidden by the appearance and the brilliancy of certain conspicuous acts. To these we shut our eyes. Nature bid us amplify praiseworthy things. Everyone exalts renown beyond the truth. And from such deeds, we deduce the conception of a grand good. So the problem with which, which Seneca sort of uh, makes uh, obvious here is that uh, you can say that people are introduced uh, to virtue by observing beauty, but we all, the Stoics also say that there are no perfect people. There are no Stoic sages. Maybe Socrates was one they sometimes grudgingly admit, but they would certainly never have claimed to be one. It's an ideal. You know, It's a perfect human being, And although we should all, as it were, see the ideal as something to strive for, it is perfectly clear that we won't get there. So how do we actually arrive at our notion, given that there are no actual examples of perfection that we can look at, uh, see their inner beauty as it were reflected in their actions? Well, it is because we act like the novices in art, you know. We don't see the flaws. And we form an idea either sort of, you know, uh, as Seneca um, uh, says, by uh, exalting, it, seeing something as perfect that isn't perfect, or, as Panatius puts it, by uh, admiring something which, if we took some philosophy courses, we might come to see as not being quite worthwhile. So I think what he is saying is, this is an introduction to Stoic philosophy, What you are being told is, I think, quite uh, stoic, but it doesn't, as it were, lead all the way to the end. So that's why at the end of this I have uh, put the passage from Seneca in which, since the the letters to Lucilius are a course in philosophy that leads you to uh, recognize the real stoic good, uh, Therefore, uh, natures we should mention here, tree, animal, and God, the last two having reasoning power are of the same nature, distinct only by virtue of the immortality of the one and the mortality of the other. Of one of these, namely God, it is nature that perfects the good of the other. Pains and study. So we have to acquire perfection through our own efforts. Gods are perfect by themselves. All other things are perfect only in their particular nature, not truly perfect since they lack reason. Indeed, to sum up, that alone is perfect, which is perfect according to nature as a whole. And nature as a whole is possessed by reason. That is to say, you have to stake a, 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 a philosophy course with the Stoics that leads you to the argument from design, to the recognition that the universe is ruled by a divine reason and that's the best order in the world and that you then have the desire to conform to it because you yourself are rational and you want to do what God wants you to do. And then, as it were, you figure out that what God wants you to do is follow the instinct he has given us. This is how one arrives within the framework of general stoicism at the theory of appropriate action. We are doing things that are appropriate, that our nature makes us inclined to do, because we realize that uh, the divine reason has given us these tendencies in order to lead us to virtue and uh, a good life. Um, So this is missing uh, from Paneizzi's book, and that's why I think it actually is intended, as it were, A, as an exposition which will be read by educated people who are not specialists in philosophy and who don't like the uh, stoic terminology. This includes many people. Uh, But B, it is also meant as an introduction in the sense that, yes, if you are really interested, you have to go on further till you come to the point where you see that it's all the divine order and so on, and that the reason why acting in this way is appropriate is because nature wants you to do so. Uh, So let me just come to a a quick conclusion about the book. I've talked about Panaetius all the time and why it makes sense to introduce such a thing as the decorum. It's both, as it were, epistemologically important and it is also something that he can describe as uh, what makes us be liked by others. So by introducing the large field of uh, etiquette, uh, politeness, and and so on, uh, which as I said, made it such a good manual for young men. But now imagine an 18th century reader. Now these 18th century readers, of course, weren't Stoics, right? Uh, But they all read Cicero's Theofikis in school or at at the latest in college. And they might very well, I think, have gotten uh, the idea that that was all there was to it. Because, uh, and that, I think, is, 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 is uh, one part of the importance of uh, uh They didn't hold, of course, the most famous Stoic thesis that virtue is the only good. There are lots of English authors who make fun of the Stoics for that reason. Nor did they expect a moral theory to have the form of an ancient theory, at least since Aristotle, starting from a determination of the highest good and then teaching us how to achieve that, the best life. Uh, so these readers might not miss an account of happiness of the highest good or expect it in a book of practical moral advice. Um, uh, 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 the famous claim that virtue is the only good uh, and therefore also enough to make us happy plays no role in the dioficiis. E. And I think it is significant that Cicero defends upon of autocracy as a Stoic against other Stoics who maintained that conflicts between virtue and utility could not arise. Uh, by <coughs> arguing, uh, repeatedly asserting that Panadius did have he, all those fundamental theses and that the conflicts were merely apparent. But later readers of the Deifices could well come away with the, way, with the, after all, perfectly plausible view that self-love and benevolence are equally natural, for humans, and that the comforts of life described in the second book, including the support of friends and, and, and other followers, such as, as such as health, wealth, and beauty, and, of course, friends, would be quite relevant to human animals. Of course, the real Stoics wanted to maintain that these things were totally indifferent in the sense that they didn't affect our happiness because the only thing that counted was virtue. Uh, <clears throat> What Pai treated in his book was, as the title indicates, only a part of Stoic ethics, uh, intended as an introduction for educated gentlemen that might perhaps inspire some of them to go on to study with the expert. Uh, But in order to argue for the Stoic conception of the highest good, seeing rational humans as members of a community that also included the gods, as in the passage I just quoted from Seneca, the, a lot more would have been uh, needed, including the distinctions between real goods and evils, and the so-called preferred and dispreferred indifference, and uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, 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 so uh, uh, this is actually uh, uh, gone away. Uh, uh, and as far as I can see, I'm now skipping a discussion of you know, People's, I mean, there are, of course, different integrations of this move. Uh, the conviction that agreement with universal nature is the only real good can only be motivated by Stoic theology. So you have to delve into metaphysics to arrive at the view that Cicero just, that Seneca describes because he has arrived, as it were, at the end of a philosophy course. And you now is just recommending going to one. So a gentleman of the 18th century would think that he finds everything you need in the theory that he is offered in the Deifices. People are attracted to virtue because they have a moral sense, and moral sense, of course, was the expression of the time, and I'm pretty uh, inclined to believe that it, it sort of naturally came from Cicero. From uh, and uh, so uh, what more do we need? You can recognize virtue, you have a moral sense, you approve of virtue because you have the moral sense, you disapprove of what is unjust and unfair and so on of vice uh, and then you act in accordance with your human nature, which, luckily, will lead you to act virtuously and to become a good person. And then, if you follow Hanaito's advice about you know, being like by others, you will also behave yourself tactfully if you can, and so on, you will be liked by others. So it seems to me that it is quite likely uh, that readers of the 18th century didn't think that anything was missing. They probably... Uh, and, you know, unsurprisingly overlooked the fact that this wasn't a general exposition of ethics. They took it as a full account of ethics because ethics at the time really was about how to act, how to decide, and so on and so forth. Uh, And so, as it were, paradoxically, although it was probably not intended by Panaitios, his book, which put metaphysics so very much in the background, actually led to what later ages saw as as a... a complete account of ethics, namely a kind of moral sense ethics. Thank you and um, for your patience.
2: I have a question. It's, I don't think it's directly related to the final result, but it um, has to do with, I guess, um, in the first uh, paragraph, I'm, I'm, I've noticed the word... Um, they are careful also not to do and, and to do nothing in an unfitting or effeminate way. Yeah, and and I've always been puzzled. I noticed that recently in a, in a class I was taking uh, that Machiavelli referred to uh, a prince not being not being acting in, in an effeminate way, and I, I'm puzzled by that because um, I don't know quite know what that means. Some, some sometimes I'm trying to understand. Um, sense of feminine sort of suggests feminine yes. I, I'm trying to understand how uh, women might be situated in, in this ethical um, well view. unfortunately
1: they're not um, uh, you're quite right effeminate does mean behave like a woman and you know for a real man that wasn't how one behaved uh, Machiavelli, thank you for mentioning Machiavelli Machiavelli much maligned I think uh, because, uh, it was actually one of the people who studied the Deo Ficis and his prince is actually uh, sort of obviously meant to be something like the kind of manual that Cicero had provided and Machiavelli himself I think was not a Machiavellian in the modern sense so, so it's not implausible that he took this but effeminate does mean behave like a woman and that's supposed to be reprehensible in men, the whole thing is for men There is a little bit, a little piece about women which says that they have to be pretty uh, and gentle and not talk too much. Uh, (laughs) There's not much you can do about that. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, remember the old adage, mulia takiat in ecclesia goes back to the early Christian church. You know, women should shut up in church. Uh, So... (laughs) Well, I mean, in this respect, you know, it's hopeless. It is hopeless. Um, It took us a long time. Uh, Some Stoics, and, ah, well, come to think of it, uh, even Epicurus did admit women. And they also, they must have realized that women were just as smart. But then, you, I mean, you see that from the Greek plays, and, you know, to look at the really impressive women who show up there, you don't even have to read the philosophers. Uh, But, you know, the... Well, and then I think I mean, of course, you know, uh, uh, living in this age, you have thought about it. One thing that I have thought about it was that you know, these people were always pregnant, unless you were a nun or a Vestal virgin or something or other, or you were ugly enough that nobody would marry you. Once these people married, and they usually married at the age of, preferably uh, age, something like sixteen to eighteen, you know, they would always be. Uh, uh, pregnant, and, you know, uh, some of them, I think this became worse over time with urbanization, but in any case, many of them died in childbirth. So one reason I'm afraid, you know, this is no reason to think they're dumb or anything, but one reason why women couldn't, in fact, you know, were physically prevented from doing some of the things that men could do was that they were held back by the fact that they were having children all the time. Um, so it's perhaps not so surprising that this century has seen more of a liberation of women than others because we also have to think of the physical side. I mean, thinking back, you know, you had to be either um, a nun or the most, uh, the most preferable thing in the 19th century is being the widow of a very rich man. Because once you had been married, you could do what you liked. But before you were married, you were, you know, you were being sort of uh, looked after by your family, and it was a miserable existence. So I think, I'm afraid, you know, we can't do much about this. Uh, that's, that's the time, and all we can say is, you know, we shouldn't be too arrogant, claiming that he shouldn't have done this.
0: I wish to ask you about the relation you see between the innovation you say Panaceous uh, brought in concerning inner beauty Mm -hmm. and reflections on beauty such as we can find uh, in Posidonius and Chrysippus as reported by Galen. Mm -hmm. So the debate about when and how we develop a sense of beauty. Mm -hmm. So... What is it? I'm trying to pin down the novelty. Uh, so, if we compare it to uh, a Chrysippus saying, uh, We have a sense of beauty since we are born, mm-hmm. the novelty of uh, Panaitius is in transferring this sense of beauty to a sense of inner beauty? I couldn't. I think it's a use he
1: the... makes of it. I mean, of course, you know, they will say that virtue is visible or something or other but to really explain it in terms of this analogy, as Seneca calls it, and to make it part of uh, the way that leads us to virtue without having to study, as it were, all of Stoic metaphysics. I think that's the innovation. I mean, that's why it shows up at a place where one doesn't expect it, I think. Uh, um, The earlier Stoics, I mean, the earlier Stoics and your Epictetus, of course, uh, tended to be a lot more... Open and perhaps more naive, in thinking that you could just appeal to, to God and reason. You could just appeal to the beauty of the world, and people would follow you. Um, the Romans, I think, might not have been so willing to do that. So while you find Epictetus saying, you know, God has wanted us, and, I mean, he doesn't argue for it. I think uh, the other Stoics do argue. For this, you do find a very long version of the argument for from design in Cicero's De Natura Deorum, and that's definitely stoic. Um, so, I mean, this is uh, something, and that's, I think, uh, why it's an innovation to use the sense of beauty as our way towards recognizing virtue and to, as Seneca puts it, to acquire our first notion of the good. That is to say, we can recognize things that are good, but we can't explain, as it were, what makes them so good. So we can only understand what this inner beauty comes to once we understand what kinds of beliefs about the, you know, uh, the divine order of the world leads to the kind of inner harmony that they're talking about. But it can be recognized because it shows up in, in this kind of form. I think that's the, that's the innovation, if I'm right. I may, I
0: may be wrong. I mean... Yeah. So, why is that not in the symposium? Pardon? The symposium. I'm thinking about where the antecedent, I mean, the Stoics are readers yeah. of Plato after all. Mm-hmm. Might one not think that you get exactly that move in the symposium where you move from thinking about, I mean, you move from thinking about well, for one outer thing, beauty to thinking yeah. about inner beauty?
1: Well, Plato's beauty, I believe, ends up being pretty abstract. I see. Uh, And here you get from looking at beautiful people and looking at beautiful pictures and looking at beautiful horses and maybe beautiful houses to the idea, and of course in in this case, since we are going from eyes to the mind, you look at beautiful young men, preferably, and then lo and behold you get the idea that that's, that's not real. I mean, the Stoics are very strongly influenced by Plato. I wouldn't, yeah, I mean, of course you get that in the *Phaedrus*, right? But then you have this, uh, this step further, which I think is, you know, here you have a theory which doesn't require that. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. I mean, I'm not denying, you know, that, that they were strongly influenced. I mean, I'm the first person to admit that. But it's not that direct.
0: It was impossible to hear that talk without admiring the beauty and harmony of the composition. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.